So those verses we just read, the, the, the verses that they read were more than likely Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 5. You can look that up later. But when you look it up and you read, you can see this is kind of obvious what, where they were reading in the book of the law. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a great little section. They, they read from the book of the law. They're kind of continuing in this, this practice that they, they've had uh, since the walls have been rebuilt and they've dedicated the walls, this practice of hearing God's word and wanting to respond to what God's word says. This is a good thing. And so they hear what it says. They do what it says. And you would think, that's a nice place to end the book. Why not end Nehemiah right there? And they lived happily ever after. Why don't we, why don't we do that? Well, there's a reason they don't do that. The reason they don't end there is because, remember, Ezra, who wrote both Ezra and Nehemiah, wants us to see something about what God does with his people. It's a funny thing, because what we tend to be is we tend to be people who like to flatter ourselves. Human beings, we like to flatter ourselves. We like to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And so we tend to look at Scripture, we tend to deal with Scripture in a way that says, okay, what, what am I going to do for God? Whether we say that in a prideful sense or in a despairing sense. What do I have to do for God? That tends to be how we focus. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is not what we do for God, but what God does for us. Now, it involves our cooperation. We're going to talk about that a lot today. But we need to understand that. The reason, I think, that we don't end on this high note... That, that, that Ezra goes back to the personal account of Nehemiah and talks about how God needs to correct his people is because God wants us to recognize it's him who's doing the correcting. God's the one who corrects our course. God's the one who brings us back on track. He does that for us. And as difficult as it is when he does it, he does it because he loves us. And so this is what we want to look at today. In fact, I want to Kind of give you three, we want to see three things, three ways that God corrects his people out of love. So let's pick it up in verse four, or verse four of chapter 13. I'm going to read verses four to nine. Follow with me. It says, Now before this, Eliashib, the high priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, uh, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had to return to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and then I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing him a room for the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the room, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and frankincense." Now, we see here Nehemiah is giving us this account of how he's condemning Eliashib, the high priest. He's condemning Eliashib's alliance with Tobiah. Do you remember who Tobiah is? Tobiah is Tobiah the Ammonite. Someone who is, in one sense, not allowed to come into the temple area. Not allowed to come in to worship God's people. But also, if you remember from earlier, way back in chapter 2, way back in the earlier chapters of Nehemiah, Tobiah was one of the people that was wanting to see the work that Nehemiah 
or that God was wanting to accomplish through Nehemiah, Tobiah was one of the guys who wanted to see that stop. He was an enemy of God's people. He was an enemy of God's work. And yet here we see a situation where he's found himself a way to kind of, well, be right there in the midst of everything. Taking over one of these rooms inside the temple court would not just be a way to kind of exalt yourself, it would also be a way to have influence over people. So here's someone who's, who's been identified clearly as an enemy to God's people, and yet he's being brought in. And Nehemiah's going, this is wrong. And Nehemiah tells us really clearly, right, this happens because he was away, right? He, he wasn't in, 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 in the time. We, we know that he was in, uh, in Jerusalem for about 12 years, and then he was called back by the king of Babylon to go serve again, probably gone for a year or two. When he comes back after a year or two, what's happened? These guys have gone right back to the junk they were involved in before he brought the reforms. That, that Israel's gone into this junk. It's interesting, remember Eliashib, the high priest, he was the guy, his name means God will restore. He was the one who is kind of the beginning block when they were beginning to actually do the rebuilding. It starts with Eliashib. Eliashib and his family start rebuilding the gate, the sheep gate. You remember that? And yet here he is allowing an enemy of God's people to live right there inside the temple where real worship is supposed to take place. Now, now, Nehemiah, we'll see in this chapter, Nehemiah has an interesting way to respond. I'd say he's very American. He's quite aggressive. And, and, and he's, he's mad. When it, when it says that he was grieved in his heart, you get a sense of he's, he's seething. His nostrils are flaring. And he's like, this shouldn't be. And so you, I can just picture him going into this area of the temple and, and chucking stuff out, Ching! clothes flying everywhere, utensils clanging against the stone. I can just see him just kind of just in, in, in zeal, just consumed for God's house and chucking stuff out, just like Jesus would do several hundred years later. Just like this should not be. He, he's, he's fed up. And the reason this should not be is because by... Tobiah being there, there's actually a deception going on to God's people. Someone who has been seen as an enemy to God's people is now being brought forth as if he's a friend. That's a lie. That's a deception. That needs to be corrected. And so God uses Nehemiah to chuck this guy out. Look at verse 10. I also realize, Nehemiah writes, that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place, and then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, uh, uh, the scribe, and of the Levites, Pedadiah, uh, and next to them was Hannah, the son of Zechar, the son of Mattaniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brothers. Now, what, what happens, of course, we see, is that because Tobiah has taken over this, this really huge storeroom, when he shouldn't have been there, that storeroom is not being used for the purposes of God. It's not being used for what God intended it to be used. It's actually blocking the, the true work of God. And this is what happens with lies. 
when lies come in, when we begin to believe lies, it's not just that we're adding a lie to the faith, we're pushing, or adding a lie to the truth, we're pushing truth out by bringing the, tr- the, the lie in. And so what's happening is there's this reality that, that the priests, that the, that storeroom was meant to be a place where they had the utensils they needed to, to perform the acts of worship, to lead God's people in worship, but also that's where they got their food. That's how they got, some, that's how they got paid. As they were working full-time in the temple, that's how they got paid. But because Tobiah gets moved in there, what happens? Those guys who are doing the work have to go out and get other jobs. They have to go out and work in the fields. And so they don't have time to do all the work that God's called them to do. This is what happens. Now, now, when Nehemiah does this, again, it's kind of exposing what a deception is. Because the storehouse was cleared out and Tobiah moves in, and it would have given this picture. It would have been an act that gave this picture that, okay, this storehouse, the storerooms for the house of God, they're for a privileged few. They're for those who know the high priest well. The rest of you peasants, you just go off and work. That's what it's for. That's a lie. That's a lie. The storehouses were there so that all of God's people could come together that all that was needed for that work would be supplied. That's why the storehouses were there. And so what what does Nehemiah do? He prays. We're going to see this over and over again in this chapter. Nehemiah prays in verse 14. He says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Do you know what Nehemiah is praying there? He's praying. He's saying, Lord, I'm praying for your sustaining power. Please, Lord, you you can sense kind of a desperation, a frustration, a disappointment in Nehemiah, as well as great faith. God, you have to do this, but also, Lord, you're going to have to do this because I can't leave these guys alone for two years. That's what he's feeling like. But this is good. It's good because what we're seeing happening is, is God is removing the influences that were deceiving the Israelites. And for those influences to be removed and for God's people to be sustained against those kind of influences, God has to do something. God has to do that work of sustaining. This is why prayer itself is so important. One of the books that we often have the interns or leadership people that are being developed for leadership read, it's a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Anybody read that book? Jim Cimbala, great guy. Brooklyn Tabernacle in the United States one of my favorite Pentecostals. And Jim Cimbala talks about, he says, you can tell how popular the preacher is by who shows up to Sunday morning, but you can tell how popular Jesus is by who shows up to the prayer meetings. We have several chances for people to come and pray at this church. Lisa Rose hosts hosts two prayer meetings a month. We have one every Friday morning at the church office. You can come early on Sunday morning and pray here. And we are celebrating if we get double digits. And I wonder, listen, I know that logistically a lot of people can't come. I'm not, no condemnation for that. But I do wonder how often, do we actually believe that God's going to sustain us? Or do we think, well, we'll sustain ourselves? Because if we really believe we need God's power to keep us, should not we be saying, God, please, we have to trust you to do so? This is, the, this is the encouragement we actually get from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It says, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. How are we kept? By the power of God. How do we access the power of God? Through faith. And prayer is the act of faith. 
See, God wants to remove those influences that deceive us, but we're going to have to keep looking to him. You know, I've been in ministry now since 1991. It's a long time. I've taught through the entire New Testament uh, at least once, several of the books twice, three times. I'm not bragging, I'm just kind of giving a context for what I'm about to say. After doing all that, there's still so much I kind of go, Lord, I'm not sure how this works. Is this, is this a truth or is this a deception? Is this a, a truth that we have to, a hill we have to die on or is this kind of a secondary thing we can agree to disagree on? I wrestle with these things because as one of the pastors of this church, my job is to make sure that you guys don't get deceived. My job is to give you the truth. And sometimes I'm not sure what is and what isn't. But I trust that God can sustain us. That God can correct us when we get off. And we do get off sometimes. We do get off track sometimes. But God can correct us because it's God who wants to sustain us. Now we pick up in verse 15 what happens. Nehemiah keeps writing. He says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens when they ought to be, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them. Now, you need to know that word for warning. It's used a couple times in this section. It's not a simple like, hey guys, maybe that's not a good idea. It's like a prophetic warning. God says no. It's like a really serious no, I'm putting my foot down. I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. He says, men of Tyre, that would be those who weren't of Israel, obviously. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Israel and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Now, What's happening here is, is pretty obvious. These guys are working on the Sabbath. And, and, and I know we, we're used to hearing about working on the Sabbath as, as Christians. If you've been at, in church uh, for any length of time, you've probably heard stuff from the Gospels and you've heard people talk about how the Pharisees were always complaining about working on the Sabbath and kind of busting Jesus' chops for working on the Sabbath and that kind of thing. And so you might go, oh, why is Nehemiah, he sounds like a Pharisee. Well, don't confuse Nehemiah as a Pharisee because what he's doing right now is really important. What he's doing right now is he's wanting to make sure that God's people understand that they are neglecting the very thing that was meant to identify them. The Sabbath was, is, uh, starts from Friday evening, sunset Friday evening until sunset Saturday evening. And the Sabbath was established with creation. The Bible says in, in the Genesis account that God creates the world in six days. On the seventh day, he ceases creation. He stops creating. And he, and he says, because of that, the seventh day is holy unto the Lord. And he, even before he gives the law to his people, he establishes that. The Sabbath is meant to be this time of ceasing. God ceased from creating. We cease from our works for the purpose of saying, God, we trust you as the creator and provider of every good thing. These guys weren't doing that. These guys were choosing instead to work. Now, it's really important to recognize when, when, when Nehemiah describes what they're doing, he's not describing bad work. 
They weren't involved in dodgy enterprises. This is not like some sort of anti-capitalism text or something. They're doing normal, good work, honorable work. The problem is not the work they're doing. It's when they're doing the work and what that distracts them from. And we also need to understand that this is not about them being desperate for money. I've got to work the seventh day because if not, I'm not going to make it. They've been much more desperate before. Jerusalem is, 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 at this point, healthier than it was when Nehemiah got there. Economically healthier. And so this is not out of desperation. This is out of a complete disregard for what God says. And notice as well that he, he mentions that some of those who are really active in selling are these men of Tyre. But he doesn't rebuke the men of Tyre. It says in verse 17 that he contends, when he sees the, the, the men of Tyre doing this, he contends with the nobles of Judah. Why? Why didn't he say, hey, you men of Tyre, knock it off. We're God's people. You can't work on this day. Why? Because it wasn't about them. In fact, listen, one of the purposes that God had for the Sabbath was to be a witness to people like this who would have come into the presence of the Jews of Israel and seen that they took one and seven off, something that the pagan nations never did. Listen to this. Exodus chapter 23, verse 12. God says, six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, that the son of your female servant and the stranger, that is the non-Israelite, may be refreshed. God gave this command so that when the other nations came and said, hey, we heard the Israelites are good, good people to do business with. Let's go trade with them. They show up on a Saturday and nobody's doing anything. What are you guys doing? Everyone gets a rest. God says everyone gets a rest. Yeah, but they're slaves. Nope, even slaves get a rest. Well, certainly your animals. No, animals get a rest. Everyone gets a rest. Why? Because we trust God as the provider. We trust God as the creator. We trust God's standards. Because we trust God that he's the provider of every good thing, including rest. We take the rest as God's grace to us, and we stop working. Can you imagine the heathen nations who all they do to, to survive, all they do is they work every single day. Now, I've been working since, I've had a job since I was 11 years old, and in a few times in those many years of work, there have been times when I've had to work 7, 8, 9, 10, once or twice I've had to work over 20 days in a row, and I seriously thought I was going to crack. It was so bad, mentally and physically, to have to work that many days in a row. Imagine not having any option, but you work day after day, week after week, uh, month after month, year after year, never having a break. What a testimony that the people of God could say, no, God commands for our benefit that we rest. And what's happening in Jerusalem, the place where people are supposed to meet God, nobody's resting. People are working. People are pursuing wealth. People are demonstrating. God's people are not demonstrating that they trust God, but they want to provide for themselves. Now, it, it, this is not about pagan influence. It's about a poor witness. And it's also, listen, not about ignorance. Like they didn't know any better. Because look at what he says in verse 18. Nehemiah writes, Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Remember why Israel was destroyed in the first place. Because 
the nation, Jerusalem was destroyed because, and, and the, the nation was scattered because Israel refused to keep her Sabbath. God says, okay, you owe me now 70 years of Sabbath. So you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. But after that, I'll bring you back. And we're seeing God's bringing them back. What are they doing? They're going back to the junk that got them in that wreckage in the first place. This is what they're doing. Jeremiah writes about this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. In Jeremiah 17, it says, This is what the Lord says. Listen to the warning. Stop carrying on your trade at Jerusalem's gates and on the Sabbath day. Do not do your work on the Sabbath, but make it a holy day. I give this command to your ancestors, but they did not listen or obey. They stubbornly refused to pay attention and accept my discipline. This was the pattern over and over with the nation of Israel. Now let me be really clear about this. The way we apply this as New Testament believers is not by making sure we keep Sunday a Sabbath, though that is a good application. It's a good thing to say, I'm going to set aside Sunday morning or Sunday night, whatever the church service would be, and I'm going to say, I'm going to go worship with God's people. That's a very good thing to do. I'm definitely not discouraging you not to do that. But that's not the application here. Because our Sabbath hasn't moved from Saturday to Sunday. Our Sabbath has moved from Saturday to Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath. And so our application is about, are we resting in him? Are we casting our cares on him? I'm not talking about acting like we're doing that. Let's put on a smiley face. We're half everything's fine and dandy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, do we go to him with our issues? Do people see us suffer and still have joy and peace somehow? How are you coping, do they say? Because you are going through some heavy junk and yet you seem to be okay. And we can say, well, I'm not okay. It's really tough. But I know Jesus has me. He's my rest. He's my Sabbath. This is what he calls us to. This is what's meant to identify us. Jesus told his disciples, he said, um, he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give to you, but my peace I give to you. In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. What? I've overcome the world. He's not saying it's going to be easy for you to be a Jesus follower. He says it's going to be tough, in some ways tougher than for anybody else to live their life, but you will have my peace as you seek my face. This is what God desires for us. Listen, this is not meant to be any sort of condemnation, but it is meant to be a correction. That if we are enjoying the peace that is ours, that the Bible says surpasses understanding something's wrong and what's wrong is not with God. It's with us. We're neglecting the very thing that identifies us as Jesus' followers. And that is knowing that we have a relationship with him that gives us peace. Now, as he exposes this, Nehemiah calls these guys to serious, active repentance. Look at verse 19. It says, So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, he said that I commanded the gates be shut, and that they charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates to see, so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and the sellers and all kinds or uh, merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. And then I warned them and I said to them, "Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you." Now don't think this is like I'm going to come pray for you. This is like I'm going to chuck you out myself. 
See, he says he's very American. I will lay hands on you, he says. And from that time, they came on the Sabbath no more. I love that bit. <laughs> and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, that they should go out and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. And so, actually, drop down also to verse 30. This is kind of summarizing all that Nehemiah has done in the book, but it fits in what we're talking about here. It says, Thus I cleansed them of every pa- everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to, and to bring in the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed time. So, so there's a very practical expression of repentance that he's calling them to. And the same goes for us. It's, it's pointless for me to say, isn't it? It's pointless for me to say to you, you know what? What identifies us as Christians is that we, we, we pursue God, we have fellowship with God through Jesus, and we enjoy that fellowship and bear the fruit of peace and love. That's what you should do. How? <laughs> How? Because if, if, you're gonna, if we're going to repent, if we're going to receive this correction and turn back to God in these things, how are we going to do it? Well, know this. If, if there's anything that you want to do, if there's anything you want to say yes to, that requires you saying no to something else. I learned a long time ago, if I wanted to say yes to having time with God in the morning, I had to say no to sleep and also no to maybe late night the night before. There's nothing unbiblical about staying up late. There's nothing unbiblical about sleeping late even necessarily. But if I want to spend time with God in the morning, and for me, that's when I need to do it. I need to send God, because if I, I get so busy, I'm so task-oriented, if I don't spend time with God in the morning, I'm off thinking about all that I'm going to accomplish that day. So I need to do it in the morning for me. So to do that, I have to say no to other things. And when I don't say no to other things, and I think, oh, I'll still do it anyway, I just, it loses the quality really bad. And then I wonder, how come I'm just so stressed out today? Well, if I actually spent time with God? Now, and I'll be honest, there's rarely a day when I miss Bible reading or saying my prayers. Tick. Tick. I'm a fairly disciplined person, so I, I keep that discipline, but am I actually meeting with God? Am I willing to say no to social media on my phone to say yes to God? It seems like so trivial and silly, like the answer, of course I am. But gosh, how easy it is for me to be distracted by things that compete for time with God when I could just sit and receive from Him just all these good things. Lord, I I can have a peace that my sins are forgiven. I can have a contentment that you're in control and my future is in your hands. I can know, Lord, all the things that I need to do. I can... I can pursue your help and be guaranteed you're going to help me. You're going to do what needs to be done in and through my life. I can know, God, all the things that I can't handle. Not only can you handle, but you are handling for me. And how do I know that? As I take time, as I say no to other things, so I can say yes to be with God. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so obvious. It's so reception class. (laughs) But we don't do it. We don't take time to be with him. So Nehemiah gives him these practical exhortations and he prays again. The second part of verse 22, look at it. He prays again. 
Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Nehemiah prays for more mercy. You guys have been Christians. Some of you guys have been Christians for a while. When are God's mercies renewed? Every morning. When do God's compassions fail? Never. How long does God's mercy endure? Forever. How awesome is that? See, this is what Nehemiah is praying for. And I love this because, I mean, Nehemiah is doing some pretty heavy stuff. He's being pretty confrontational, correcting these guys. But he's not being all high and mighty. He knows, God, I'm just as susceptible as these guys. And he knows these guys need God's mercy. And, and, I, and I want you to understand this. If you are motivated by guilt to seek after God, that will not last very long, and it will not bring any pleasure to God. Do you know what God wants us to be motivated by? Grace. Mercy. His enduring faithfulness to us. God, why am I seeking you? Well, because I'm bad and I haven't done it alone. No, because you're good. I'm seeking you because you're so good and you're so available. Do we believe that God is that good? There's this picture in, in the New Testament after Jesus is resurrected. And he shows up to the disciples in one of the rooms and they all see him and it, I think it's the account, I'm pretty sure it's the account where, where Thomas is there and says, I won't believe unless I you know, put my finger in his hands and in his side. And, and, and it's around the same time. And what happens is, is that it says, the scripture says, the disciples believed, but they didn't believe for joy. How often is that us? Okay, Lord, I, I believe. I, I know that what your scripture says is true. I do believe Jesus is the Son of God. I do believe he died for my sins. I do believe he really did raise from the dead. I have no intellectual hang-up about that stuff, but I have no joy. Why? Because God doesn't want us just to believe right. God wants us to experience right. He doesn't want us just to believe in his goodness he wants us to taste and see that he's good. Why do we put it off? Why do we choose other things? It's foolish. It's amazing, too, because oftentimes what we do is we choose good things instead of choosing the God thing. And the good then becomes the enemy of the best. Nehemiah prays for mercy because mercy is what motivates us to keep going back to him time and time again. Remember how many times we fail. Not just to, we fail in the, we, the bad things we do. We do need to confess those things and repent. But even in the good things we neglect to do, 
Do you ever feel smug when you pray about, you know, God, forgive me for my lack of love. Gosh, I'm spiritual for wanting to love more. Forgive me for my lack of prayer. Man, what a godly man I am. I want to pray more. When prayerlessness, lovelessness is just as condemning as pride or lust or theft. No, we need mercy. That's what's going to motivate us. God restores us to those commitments that identify us. That's part of his correction. He wants to bring us back to that place where we say, Lord, I am yours and you are mine. And I want my life to represent that. Verse 23. And in those days, Nehemiah says, I also saw Jews who had, in, who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashton and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. Now you need to understand, this is, this is a, a covenant issue. It's not a cultural issue. This is about the fact that God called his people to know what he said and to communicate what he said to his children. So that was... And to this day, the Jews will learn Hebrew so they can communicate the Hebrew scriptures to their children. No matter what their nationality is, no matter what culture they grew up, they learn Hebrew so they can communicate the Hebrew scriptures. God commanded, this is the way they were supposed to pass down their faith to their children. That they were meant to, to do this. They were meant to, where is it? Down in Deuteronomy chapter... Six. You might have to go a few slides to find it. But Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. It was supposed to be a daily, natural part of life that they would speak the Hebrew scriptures to their children in Hebrew. But because they married foreign wives, what happened? Don't forget, this is a patriarchal culture, so dad's out working in the fields, mom's doing all the child raising for the most part. So she's teaching the children her language, her culture, to worship her gods. Can you see why Nehemiah was upset? And so we look at verse 25, and he says, So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. That's not what happened to me. And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to your sons, nor take your daughters as sons for, for yourself or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Notice Nehemiah calls it sin. To marry someone who doesn't believe the gospel, doesn't believe in the covenant God. Yet among many nations there is no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel, nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil? Transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Jehoiadad, it says, the son of Eli Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Samblat the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Who was Samblat? He was Tobiah's partner, remember, in the early days of Nehemiah? He was Tobiah's partner as an enemy against God's people. Now he's married into the priestly family. 
Man. Now you think, gosh, Nehemiah is a bit rough. And, and let's be clear, we're not condoning. I'm not going to slap anyone around or pull your hair out. Don't worry. We're not condoning that behavior. But it does, it does illustrate how serious this was. And you might be thinking, okay, isn't God sort of into relationships? Wouldn't God be sort of happy that just maybe in a good relationship? At least they're married. Doesn't God hate divorce? Because Ezra even had some people divorce. Nehemiah's not doing that, by the way, but Ezra seemed to have done that. What's the issue? The issue here is, listen, is that we need to be clear, part of God correcting us is him rejecting relationships that corrupt us. It's not an easy thing. But following Jesus isn't an easy thing. Jesus calls us, listen, he calls us to love him more than any other relationship. That we put him first. And he does that for our benefit because it's when we love God above all things that we're freed up to love those people that we care about the most. Because what happens is, when things are getting tense with those people that we care about and we're tempted to not care about them anymore, our motivation is not them, but God who says, I want you to love these people if you love me. He calls us to this. See, this was not about, this was really about Israel's corruptibility, not the pagan corruption coming in. It was the fact that they needed to recognize, listen, you can't hang out with people. You can't have your closest relationships to be with people who believe in other gods. Because you're just as sinful as they are and you get sucked into the same rubbish. You can't. It doesn't work. Interesting. He uses Solomon as the illustration. What is Solomon known for? His wisdom. Is intelligence, right? Genius of a man. But here's what the scripture says about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, But Solomon loved many foreign wives, foreign women, excuse me, as, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, busy guy, from the nations of whom the Lord said that the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry them, nor they, you, surely they will turn your hearts after their gods, and yet Solomon clung to these in love. Now, now, there's no doubt that the Scripture wants us, the New Testament exhorts us to have real relationships with people who don't believe in Jesus. The Scripture is clear about that. You can read it in 2 Corinthians. But we do have to be wise. If all your best mates, the people that you're closest to, that you confide in, that you go to for strength, don't believe in Jesus, what's that going to do for your faith? How is that going to help you trust in Jesus? And I, and I don't mean that to, to, to put those people down. Uh, uh, many of our friends who aren't Christians are amazingly good friends. They're, they're awesome. They're faithful. They're patient. Sometimes more faithful and patient than our Christian friends, which is why we're tempted to go hang out with them. But that's not how it should be. This is why the, the, the most the most intimate human relationship you're going to have is in marriage. And you need to make sure, you who are single, if you want to be married someday, you need to make sure that you marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. So wisdom would say, don't date people that don't love Jesus more than they love you. I know that, I know that brings 
you know, the, sort of the, the pool of, of choice down really kind of shallow. I get that, you know. I do, I really get that. But if, if we want to be committed to our God, who's so committed to us, it does require us to think through these things. Now, there's loads of amazing stories of God's mercy of people who were believers, they married an unbeliever, and then the unbeliever gets saved, and they, they live happily ever after. That does happen, but just because God's merciful doesn't mean he gives permission to do that. doesn't mean it's the best thing for us to do. And sometimes, too, in, in a, the day and age where, where was exalted above all things is doing what you feel is best for you, man. We really, as believers, need to make sure that we're saying, no, Lord, I gotta believe what you say is best for me, is best for me, not what I feel is best for me. Interesting. Solomon's intelligence could not replace his obedience. Many of you here are much more clever than I, but your cleverness, you, you can't think your way around this. God sets a standard and he calls us to keep it. But also, who else does he, he talk about? He talks about Eliashib, right? Eliashib, the high priest. I wonder if Eliashib was thinking, I'm the high priest. I do all this great ministry for God. It's no big deal if I'm connected to these people. If I marry into that kind of family, no, it is a big deal. It's not wise. Now, I'll be the first to say, this takes radical wisdom to know how to walk in. Sarah and I are, are, we pray that we have more time with our friends that aren't Christians. We, we think it's a really important thing for us. God calls us to mission. We want to love those people well. We want to be real friends to them and allow them to be real friends to us. But you know how we're able to do that? Because you guys love us and we love you. It's our commitment to each other that allows us to have relationships with those people that aren't yet believers. So if we don't have that, we can't do Together. If we don't have good relationships together as believers, I can't have good relationships with unbelievers. That's the point. This is why God says he rejects those things. And what does Nehemiah do? Again, he prays. He says, remember them, O oh my God. Now, notice he'd been, he'd been praying, remember me. He says, remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and the Levites. Now, knowing the tone that Nehemiah has had this whole section, it might be like Nehemiah saying, destroy them, Lord, remember them. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what Nehemiah is praying for here, he's prayed for God's sustaining power, he's prayed for God's enduring mercy, and now he's praying, God, would you severely chasten them? Would your hand be heavy on them so they would learn not to go there? Does that sound harsh? Does that seem mean? Any of you who are parents know what it's like to feel like you're being mean to your kids. Sometimes you enjoy it, if you're honest. But oftentimes you don't. You just feel horribly guilty that you're being so strict with your kids. I remember I was having a conversation with a, a young parent and uh, it was in, in the car driving somewhere. My oldest son was in the car with me, and, and I was saying, you know, we're talking about discipline and things, and I was saying, you know, we do need to be wise about how we do these things. I feel like maybe I was a bit too harsh with Garrett. He's my oldest, and try to learn some wisdom as I yeah, had multiple kids on down the, on the, down the line. And, and after the, the, that person was out of the car, Garrett says to me, Dad, you are not too harsh. I deserved everything I ever got. <laughs> I should have got some more, he said. 
We, we feel so guilty about ever making someone else feel bad. But sometimes, listen, love requires that we make someone feel bad. Not for the sake of feeling bad, for the sake of correction. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 12 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? You see, this whole issue of correction, this, even, even Nehemiah praying, God, would you do something severe here? Remember them. Deal with this. Is motivated from a love that says, bring them back as your kids. You know what I've found in my 30-something years of being a Christian, is that God doesn't let me get away with almost anything. He doesn't get, let me get away with anything, but sometimes there's a little bit of like, a, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And sometimes there's a heavy hand on my heart that says, you need to go change. You need to deal with this. You know why he does that? Because he loves me. Now, really quick, I'm going to do maybe just two more minutes, and we're going to go through this really fast. I want to be really practical about this, because this whole, our whole attitude towards correction speaks volumes to where we are with God. So as we, we've just talked about how God used Nehemiah to correct his people. This is what God does when God wants to correct his people. He uses his people to correct his people. So let's talk about this really practically, Okay. We tend to look at correction in a number of ways. I'm going to use kind of a, a four-square grid to kind of talk about this. So it should be on the screen. In, 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 you see those four categories, that you will confront somebody, you will receive correction, you won't con confront somebody, you will refuse correction. Now, if you're the kind of person who won't confront and you refuse correction, what you're being is selfish. That displays selfishness. You might go, look, I don't want people to tell me what to do, and I'm not going to tell them what to do. You know what that is? It's selfishness. Because as Jesus followers, we need to help each other walk with Jesus. This is why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. That means that they're walking better, but their needs are more important. Okay? Don't look out for your own interests, but take, on, uh, take an interest in others too. We're not called to walk this, live this life as Christians on our own. We need each other. I need you to correct me. Someone came to my office this week. Actually, two people came to my office this week uh, in, in, covering the area of correction. One came to correct me. And it was, it was an amazing display of someone who was like, I really don't want to do this. But they knew they needed to. And it was awesome. I just felt completely loved. They were right. The things that they were bringing out, I'm like, you're absolutely right. And I am trying to deal with some of those things, but pray for me. I need help with these other things. I'm so thankful that they love me enough to come and say, brother, you've got to deal with this stuff. The other came to me wanting to be corrected. I'm hurting. I'm messing up. I need help so I can walk the way I need to walk. And what was amazing was in me helping them, God was correcting me. Because <laughs> the issues that they were struggling with, I was struggling with as well. 
See, we tend to look at correction as just like harsh punishment. We tend to look at correction as something that's like to be avoided at all costs. But this is a normal part of a father loving his children. Is he corrects us. If you won't be confronted and you refuse correction, you're just being selfish. Well, what if you, you will confront? You will confront people, but you still refuse correction. What does that make you? A hypocrite. Hypocrisy. If you'll say, yeah, that's right, John, get him. That person needs this, and that person needs this, and there's this huge beam coming out of your eyes Jesus talks about. Hypocrite, Jesus says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus isn't saying don't judge each other. He's not saying don't correct each other. He's saying you won't be able to do it unless you deal with yourself first. That's what he's saying. Yeah, I want to correct other people, but you won't be corrected? That's hypocrisy. What about, okay, I, I, I'll receive correction, but I just don't really want to confront anybody. John, you do the confronting part, but I'll receive correction. What does that make you? A coward. It's cowardice. In the book of Acts, the, the Jewish leaders were giving a command to the apostles to stop preaching Jesus. They said, look, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. We try to correct you, you wouldn't receive it. They said, well, Peter says, and the other apostles replied, we've got to obey God rather than human beings. It wasn't they wouldn't receive correction. We see other times when they wouldn't speak against, we'll see where Paul wouldn't speak against the high priest. And he apologized when he spoke wrong. They would receive correction, but not when it went against what God said. No, sorry, we're going to preach Jesus because without Jesus, even you can't be saved. To not want to correct people's wrong views. Not, and I'm talking about, especially with believers, to not want to help each other walk with each other, walk with God. We are being cowards. And you know what the Bible says in the book of Revelation? Cowards don't inherit the kingdom of God. That's heavy. Now, Okay, you say, all right. I will confront and I will receive correction. How do I do that? Humility. Humility. Peter writes this. He says, submit yourselves to your elders. In this context, he's talking about spiritual elders. Those are more mature than you. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So it can't just be, I'm not spiritual enough to ever correct it doesn't work that way. God speaks through, through people all the time. Because God op opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. This is not about competing factions in the church to say who's right and who's wrong. This is about us saying, God, we want to humble ourselves before you. We want to be willing to help people walk with you, and we want to walk with people and take whatever help we can get. He says, cast all your anxiety, anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humility. This is what we need. Which attitude do you have towards correction? Where do you fit in that graph? See, I'd be willing to bet that even right now, even today, God's been correcting you by his spirit. He's been showing you areas that he says, look, let's get back on track with this. Are you willing 
to get the help you need to get corrected. You know, one of the mistakes that makes, and I'll tell you, it makes it, it makes this hard for all of us. So often people don't want to talk to anybody else in church but me about their issues. Now, I'm not saying this because I don't want to talk to any of you. I'm happy to, and some, some maybe you feel you're newer here or it's such a big issue you don't think anybody can handle it. I get that. That's totally fine. I want you to feel like you can always come to me. I really do. But listen, if you're all waiting around to get to me before you get help, you ain't going to get the help you need. And if you think, I need to find someone who's more spiritual than me because they're the only ones that can help me, it's just not true. You know, some of the, the clearest words from God I've gotten, I've gotten from people that believe in heresy. <laughs> Stuff, I, there are people that, that I would like, I would never go to their church because I'd be concerned about the kind of teaching that happens in their church. But then if I meet them and we talk and we pray for each other, because they are my brothers, right? They'll pray something that's so prophetic, I'll go, oh man, God's really speaking to this guy. And in my pride, I thought, oh, I can't receive from that guy. He's kind of a heretic. Not a heretic, just kind of disagree with something. I remember getting in an argument with Garrett when he was about 16, and we were really going at it. And I was, I was flaming mad. I was going Nehemiah on him. And he said, Dad, I don't think we should talk about this anymore because I don't want to say something I'm going to regret, and I don't want you to say something you're going to regret, so let's give ourselves a few, some minutes. And I was like, Argh. corrected by my 16-year-old son. What's your heart towards correction? Because your heart towards God's correction is your understanding of God's love. Father, I pray you would help us to know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love for us. That, Lord, you love us so much, you chase us down. You don't let us go astray without bringing some serious chastening. Lord, you convict us. You show us the things we should be doing and the things we shouldn't be doing. Father, help us to believe what your word says. You do so because you love us. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone here who, who's clueless to what I'm talking about, who doesn't feel that conviction from you. Because Lord, as you said, if, if they're not being chastened, they're not yours. Lord, may that itself be a chastening. May they be so concerned about their eternal state that they cry out to you. Father, would you bring conviction? Would you bring restoration? Would you remove those bad influences and those bad relationships from our lives? And would you teach us to just be recommitted to you? To trust that what you've done through Jesus is enough? to trust that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection and to want to learn by the power of your spirit to love like he does. Father, we trust you that you're going to do this in, in, in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.